Those uh, pictures kind of reach out and grab you, don't they? And I'm sure that you caught the resemblance, but one of those is Amanya Vincent. And we've already talked about, you better turn them off because they're not going to listen to me if they're on. <laughs> we've already talked about how difficult it is for these children. You know, uh, the kids there, they, have, they don't know where their next meal's coming from in some cases. And certainly the kids in the orphanage have it much better than the kids who are outside. But they still have to face the reality that when they reach a certain age, they're going to have to leave the orphanage. And they don't know what to do, many of them. Certainly, those kids have it live a much more uncertain and dangerous life than the children in our beloved country. Except for one period of their lives. You see, in Haiti, a pregnancy can be intentionally terminated only to save the life of the mother. Otherwise, it's illegal. There are abortions in Haiti. Uh, the estimates are about 7% of all pregnancies end in abortion. Uh, in fact, the Population Research Institute reports that despite its illegality, the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, promotes and funds abortions in Haiti and skirts the law by simply calling it post-abortion care. They have trained uh, 300 nurse auxiliary midwives to work in rural Haiti to implement such programs of post-abortion care. Uh, for us in the States, life is really pretty comfortable for kids, especially compared to these kids. If only a child can make it out of the womb. The most dangerous place to be in America, a mother's tummy, where close to 30% of the residents die by abortion. Now, you know, this is not a comfortable issue. Last time I spoke on this was more than four years ago uh, in a series entitled God is the issue when we discussed how to bring all issues back to the source of all truth. And today we hope to review some of that teaching in the search for the value of life. And this comes at kind of a paradoxical time for us at Lion and Lamb. Several here have celebrated new birth recently, and the Vincents now look forward to not only Amanya coming to join our chaos, but we also celebrate the news that our Esther is carrying a grandson. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, the DeWalts and the Halpins and the Tinsleys mourn the loss of Bill, as we all do. And, and I, for one, have so much enjoyed my conversations with this man who played a significant role in rearing the two godly women we know as Barb and Kathy and, and several others. And these events remind us that it's God who gives and it's God who takes away. But he also, it also reminds us of the reason that we celebrate and mourn is because we value life. Now, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and certainly history records, goes all the way back to the Greek and Roman cultures where abortion was common, not only for natural causes like death in the womb, but also to control population for convenience, even appearances. And one of the most important achievements of the gospel and the early church was to move abortion and infanticide to the fringes of society. Now, without medical technology, the early believers thought that life began at quickening, a time when the baby first moved 
That's when they thought the child was first alive because they, had, they, they could know no other thing. But some actually thought the issue through. St. Augustine pondered the dilemma when a fetus died in the womb and then was removed by abortion to save the life of the mother. Augustine questioned, how could it be said that the child that died never lived? The history, I'll go through briefly here, uh, our common law prohibited abortions before or after quickening. Uh, and uh, interestingly, in the rights, in the fight for women's rights or women's suffrage that we had in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the early first wave feminists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton fought against abortion. On the other hand, Lenin legalized all abortions in the Soviet Union in 1920, and in Nazi Germany in 1935, they amended their eugenics law. Again, that movement started in the United States to promote abortion for women who have hereditary disorders. And uh, the, food, the fetus could not be viable, uh, but it also allowed abortions for so-called racial hygiene. I don't know about you, but it's a little scary that the Nazis had more restrictive abortion laws than we do now. The movement progressed in the mid-1900s, and in 1961, California became the first state to legalize abortion under certain circumstances. We, in the great state of Kansas, seem to regularly be in the middle of big issues, whether it's John Brown's role in starting the Civil War or the confusing and confounding role of Fred Phelps in the homosexual debate. Kansas somehow always finds its way to the national stage. Now, go back. Studies in the early 60s showed that most students in the heartland, including at the University of Kansas, largely believed in marital fidelity and the relationships within that context. At that point, an odd and sometimes conflicting mix of university faculty and doctors and feminists and population control people and social engineers saw that attitude as an impediment to the paradigm shift that they wished to advance. So they set out to replace this holdover from the puritanical 50s with notions of individual autonomy. In other words, physical relations free of obligation, commitment, and moral stigma. They believed that if they could change the attitude in the heartland of America, they could do it anywhere. So these folks set out to change that moral landscape with a student body at KU, and in the process, they contributed to one of the most significant cultural shifts in modern history. This effort was apparently very successful. Kansas, the heart of America, conservative, Republican Kansas, was one of the first states to legalize abortion in 1968. Me? I was right there attending KU in 1972 in the middle of the sexual revolution and I missed it completely. I vaguely, vaguely remember a takeover of a campus building by a group called the February Sisters who demanded changes in university policy toward women like being lectured on morality when they sought contraception from the KU health clinic. And the administration largely caved. This was a convoluted revolution. You, you could call it a sea change. But it was very effective in changing the moral attitude towards premarital sex in the heartland. And that was exactly the name of a book by Beth Bailey, which explains much of the fire of the sexual revolution experienced in the United States, which subsequently developed or, or caused the demand for abortion was actually sparked in little old Lawrence, Kansas. Now, the legal fight for abortion rights was first teed up when, a state, when the state of Connecticut passed a rather silly law prohibiting the dissemination of information about contraceptives, which the Supreme Court struck down in 1965. And in that case, the Supreme Court discovered a new right 
the right of privacy in family relations. Now, this right, frankly, is not mentioned in the Constitution at all. But the court found the right in the, listen to this, penumbra of rights enumerated in the Constitution. Okay? Everybody knows that a penumbra is the partial shadow outside the complete shadow, or the umbra, where we get umbrella, formed by an eclipse. Very short science lesson. So you got the sun, you got the, move that, the moon that moves in front of it for an eclipse, and you see on the outside of that a gray shadow, and then you see the light that comes from the sun beyond that. And that gray shadow is the penumbra. Well, let me briefly interpret. The court basically said, we found a right in the Constitution that's not there. Accept it. Live with it. Deal with it. Therefore, because they use this fancy word, penumbra, most casual readers figure, well, you know, there's got to be some legal rationale for that. Well, just a few years later, some lawyers seized upon this newfound right to privacy in the family and applied it to the individual person. And they thought, you know, if a couple has the right to find out how to prevent conception of a child, it has a, it's a relatively small jump, logically, to conclude that a woman who goes through the pain of pregnancy and childbirth, perhaps she has the right to prevent birth even after conception. After all, it is her body. And so, on January the 22nd, 1973, 40 years ago, more importantly, over 50 million abortions ago, the court decided the Roe v. Wade case in a 7-2 decision, effectively striking down all restrictions on abortion in this country. Byron Whizzer White was an all-American halfback at the University of Colorado in the 1930s, runner-up for the Heisman Trophy. He went on to play professionally for the Pittsburgh Pirates, who became the Steelers, and led the NFL in rushing in 1938. And this dumb jock went on to serve for 31 years as one of the most respected justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, where he sat in 1973 when Roe was decided. And appellate justices have the option, when they disagree with the majority decision, to write a dissenting opinion, giving their reasons why the, the majority is wrong. Justice White, one of the two dissenters in the, in the Roe v. Wade case, wrote in his emphatic dissent, I find nothing in the language or history of the Constitution to support the court's judgment. The court simply fashions and announces a new constitutional right for pregnant moms and, with scarcely any reason or authority for its action, invests that right with sufficient substance to override most existing state abortion statutes. As an exercise of raw judicial power, the court perhaps has authority to do what it does today. But in my view, its judgment is an improvident and extravagant exercise of the power of judicial review that this Constitution extends to the court. Now, Justice White, like nearly all judges, tended to defer to decisions eventually, even if they initially disagreed with him. But throughout his life, he never gave in to the Roe decision, which shows how strongly he objected to the court's decision. His biographer makes note of this uh, when he said, unlike all other areas in which several years of reaffirmation settled legal doctrine and dictated White's acceptance of a line of authority, even where he had dissented at first, abortion was an exception. An illegitimate decision was entitled to no respect. Some people were actually thinking... But since the U.S. Supreme Court came to this rather strained conclusion, the cultural battle has waged on several fronts, including the scientific as well as the philosophical. Frankly, science and technology have often been the friends of the unborn, pushing back the time uh, at which life may be saved in the womb and giving us vivid pictures of life within the womb. 
Now these pictures have made that line of protection drawn at birth less and less defensible. So much so that the abortion advocates have pretty much given up the argument that life does not begin in the womb. One of the realities that Christy and I have tried to teach high school students in our worldview class is that ideas have consequences. In other words, one's worldview or source of ultimate truth affects how one looks at life and makes decisions. Now, the extent of that effect depends on how consistent one is to one's beliefs. And the extent of that, uh, of course, there are many, excuse me, there are many who, because of apathy or laziness or, or just failure to think clearly, do not act consistently with their presuppositions. For example, some Bible-believing Christians say there's nothing wrong with gay marriage, even though the Bible speaks clearly on the issue of male-female relationships. Now, the good thing about these folks is that they may be open to reconsideration when presented with sound, logical, and biblical argument, or simply when God works on their hearts. Now, for the others, those few who stick to their convictions regardless of where it takes them, we can usually concede, yeah, well, at least they're consistent when they act according to their beliefs. One such person that we studied in our class was a man named Peter Singer, who could be described as a relatively consistent atheist. Because to the dismay of abortion advocates, Singer rejects birth as a relevant dividing line between person and non-person, agreeing with pro-life advocates that there is really no significant difference between the fetus and a newborn. Singer said, the liberal search for, morally, for a morally crucial dividing line between the newborn baby and the fetus has failed to, to yield any event or stage of development that can bear the weight of separating those with a right to life from those who lack such a right. Pretty smart guy. But, instead of upgrading the fetus to the status of a person, Peter Singer downgrades the status of a newborn to a non-person. Because newborns, like fetuses, are incapable of, quote, seeing themselves as distinct entities existing over time. He reasons they're not rational, they're not self-conscious beings with a desire to live, and therefore, by his criteria, personhood hinges on those factors. And so, killing a newborn or a fetus is not the same thing as killing a person. In fact, some acts of infanticide are less problematic than killing a happy cat. If, for example, a parent kills a disabled child to make way for another baby who will be happier than the first, the total amount of happiness increases for all interested parties. So we can sum up Singer's view this way. Until a baby is capable of self-awareness, there is no controlling reason not to kill it to serve the preferences of the parents. In 1979, Singer wrote, Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. Therefore, the life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. Interestingly, Peter Singer is an outspoken animal rights advocate. Now, while Singer and other atheists can never claim that their, right, that their view is right or true because they have no concept of absolute truth, it could be said or argued that if their view of reality is correct, if there really is no God, well, their preference is as good as anyone else's. In other words, ideas have consequences. Now, in recent years, the abortion debate has been overshadowed by many issues. Uh, financial collapse, terrorism, energy crisis, gay rights and marriage. We're bombarded with issues. But in recent days, because we have a government that does not value the life of the unborn, the issue has gotten a lot more attention, especially 
with issues of the conscience. The present administration has told Christian employers like Hobby Lobby and Christian colleges, you can believe anything you want to, just don't think that you can live out your beliefs in this country. In other words, elections have consequences. Now, last time I spoke, it was prior to the 2008 election. We talked about this. We cautioned about how important it was for that Supreme Court appointments would be in determining the future of the abortion issue. Looking at it at this point in time from a human perspective, a positive change on the court seems very unlikely. Our president has already appointed two pro-abortion court members and will likely appoint another in his second term, if not more, leaving the court at least one vote short of a life-affirming majority. Now, We can cry in our beer, or we can choose to look at this state of affairs as a good thing. Because it forces us not to look to the president or to the courts, but to ourselves. Suffice it to say, we must be ready on our level, neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, to win the hearts of the culture back to a God-honoring value of life. So one thing we can all do better is win the minds of people around to this view in the marketplace of ideas. Some have done this very, very well, like Mother Teresa when in 1997 she spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast attended by President and Mrs. Clinton when she said, it is a poverty to decide that a child must die that you may live as you wish. She said a lot more than that. And why did she get away with it? Because Teresa earned the respect by her sacrifice for the least of these. We should follow that example. However, others have stumbled in this area. And we should learn from their mistakes. In the God is the Issue series, we talked about avoiding versus Framing the question. What's that mean? What is avoidance? Well, the most recent example that really got me a little upset was when a friendly media person tried to throw a softball to the president to put to rest a serious charge. And he simply asked, yes or no, were requests for help from those under attack at the consulate in Benghazi denied? Take care of it, President. What the President said was, those people who died were honorable, and that was it. Now, I don't know whether the President was clueless or whether he really had something to hide. But what is clear is that he avoided the question completely. Now, framing the question is a little different. Because somebody can ask you a question in such a way that it's very, very difficult to answer and you should never get caught in that position. Framing the question of abortion played a significant role in our last election. U.S. Congressman Todd Aiken of Missouri ran against sitting U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill who was considered one of the most vulnerable incumbents uh, for a variety of reasons. I heard uh, Representative Aiken speak at a pastor's conference, and I can tell you there was overwhelming support from the Christians and the pro-life community, and they believed sincerely that this man was God's person to win this election. Then somebody dug up a transcript from an interview by a St. Louis Fox News reporter in August of 2012. You may have heard about this, but I suspect that this will be the first time you will have heard the whole context of that uh, relevant discussion. What do you think about this? Interviewer. On abortion, Representative Aiken, you've been pro-life your entire career. Aiken. Yeah. Interviewer. You've been staunchly pro-life. Are there any circumstances in your mind in which abortion should be legal? Aiken. Well, I think that sometimes people talk about life of the mother as a situation, Charles. And in my sense, one of the foundational things America is built on is a respect of life. What I would say 
is we should optimize life. For instance, a woman has a tubal pregnancy or something. Technically, by my understanding, life begins at conception. So you technically had conception, but the child doesn't have a chance and will soon kill the mother. So I would say in those situations, you try to optimize life. But you know, uh, this has been a sort of an abortion question all along. One of the things I love about this country is the fact that Americans do consider life really important. And it's not just because of some theoretical thing. You're on a talk show and somebody asks you about it. But you have September 11th, and you've got these guys that are running into a building that's about to collapse. They find somebody in a wheelchair. They never check their ID or anything like that or whether they're important. They grab them and get them to safety, and they run back and get another one. Same kind of thing that we saw. Ollie North had some footage. You know, he's been right there in the front with the cameras taking footage. This is over in Iraq. And there's a Marine, a big guy. And he's got this guy who's wounded over his shoulder. And he's running and the bullets are flying all around. And there is a cameraman in a safe position. And the cameraman says, Hey, that guy, that isn't a U.S. soldier. That's an Iraqi citizen. Why are you risking your life there? The Marine turns around and he looks straight into that guy's camera and says, Because that's what we do. That is the spirit of America, I think, is so, and this is so important for us to protect that idea of the importance of all of us. Interviewer. Okay, so if an abortion can be considered in the case of, say, tubal pregnancy or something like that, what about the case of rape? Should it be legal or not? Well, you know, people want to always try to make that one of those things. Well, how do you... How do you slice this particular tough sort of ethical question? It seems to me, first of all, from what I understand from doctors, that's really rare. If it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try to shut the whole thing down. But let's assume that maybe that didn't work or something. You know, I think there should be some punishment, but the punishment ought to be on the rapist and not attacking the child. End of quote. Now, I think Representative Aiken gave a pretty effective answer, except for two sentences that sunk his campaign and caused a reaction from eager opponents who for days during the campaign claimed that Aiken was a clueless and insensitive pro-life Neanderthal with a willing media creating wall-to-wall coverage on his two sentences. This caused the Republicans to cower in fear. Even Mitt Romney, who is currently pro-life, disowned the congressman, and the party withdrew their support. It was a classic campaign freefall. Now, what lessons can we learn from Todd Aiken's experience, of course, with 2020 hindsight? First of all, just the facts, ma'am. Anybody remember Dragnet? Maybe not. We all tend to want to say something significant. But in searching for that significant statement, we will sometimes think of something we heard a long time ago from some forgotten source, and we just got to say something, so we blurt it out to make an authoritative statement so we can sound intelligent. You may get away with this at the dinner table with only a roll of the eyes from the kids, but you're not going to get away with that in public, particularly for a high-profile office. Keep to what you know. Like in the courtroom, if you don't know what you're talking about, keep your mouth shut. Simply, Todd Aiken is not a medical doctor and should not be giving medical opinions. Secondly, my point is, when talking about delicate and emotional issues, avoid double and triple entendres especially those that can be characterized as inherently contradictory, even if only by idiots. Okay, Congressman Aiken left the question hanging. What does legitimate rape mean? Well, we all know. Dollars to donuts, he intended to imply that rape can be a false accusation, especially if a woman wants to justify an abortion. But the lesson here is, if it can be taken out of context, it will. 
because this was a political campaign without scruples, some of the political hacks actually parsed his words to try to make him say that he really thought there is such a thing as legitimate rape. This man let his guard down for two sentences and his poor choice of words was red meat to desperate opponents and they enjoyed and chewed slowly every bite. Finally, every Christian and certainly pro-life candidates for any high office, including the presidency, we now know will be asked this question. It's not just office seekers, but we as well would be wise to think, maybe get advice from those who have thought through these sorts of inevitable questions. I suspect when asked many candidates in the future will fall into line distance themselves, and strongly disagree with Representative Aiken and justify a child conceived in a rape being aborted. However, during that time I heard a great response from a lady who herself was conceived by rape and then survived an attempted abortion. She was not just passionate, but she had thought through this issue. And here's how she would answer that question. The, the U.S. Constitution prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. You've all heard that, I'm sure. The U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted that a law which allows a state to put somebody to death for rape, including rape of a child, is unconstitutionally cruel and unusual. Can you explain to me, would you please justify, how it is that we value, we spare the life of the guilty party, but yet we put to death the innocent party in the incident? We must consistently value life as a gift from God. I submit to you, that if Representative Aiken had reframed the question and stuck to an answer like that, instead of giving a, a small medical opinion, don't know if he'd be U.S. Senator right now, but I do know that he would not have set off a firestorm as he did because his opponents would not want that kind of clarity of thought publicly expressed on the issue. In addition, he might have made someone think rather than react. And you and I, need to strive to help people think logically and biblically with our responses to their tough questions. And sometimes that involves reframing the question so we don't get in the same trap. Finally, we must read and know our Bible. If we have an opportunity, the best way to convince others of the truth is through the conscience and the heart by bringing the discussion back to God. Of course, that requires the perception and the spirit of Jesus. But to discuss these matters intelligently and with confidence, we must be well grounded in what the Word says about the issue. So, what does the Bible say about abortion? Well, if you look, you will not find it in the concordance. But God wants you to think and apply His Word. One doctrine that is used to help us see the value of unborn life is the Incarnation. You see in the familiar Christmas story in Luke 1, uh, where the angel Gabriel tells Mary she will conceive the Son of God by a miracle when her elderly cousin Elizabeth is in her sixth month of carrying John the Baptist, who in turn leaps for joy within Elizabeth's womb when the presence of the days old embryonic Jesus comes to her. Pretty clearly. Jesus and John were living and had value at conception. But the value of life is affirmed throughout the Bible. And it views new life, children, as a gift, a blessing, a heritage from God Himself. 
Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. The foundation of the pro-life movement is the concept that life begins at conception. And unlike the early church, we have the advantage of seeing into the womb. So from a biological and even a legal standpoint, taking any other point, for human life is arbitrary and playing God in character because there's really no other logical point of beginning than uh, for life to begin than when it starts its continuum at conception. Now, follow me here. In a sense, I agree that life does not begin at conception. This is just my view. But please consider the following verses. One Psalm 139 says this, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been wonderfully and remarkably made. Your works are wonderful, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless, All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. Okay? John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into existence through Him. And then God said to the prophet Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb... I knew you. Now, do we believe that Jesus created all things? Were you and I, in essence, created by Jesus Christ? How about your parents and grandparents all the way back? Your children, grandchildren, all the way forward. Did God foreknow our existence? Does He have a plan for our life? It's part of that plan when we'll live on earth, and what family we'll be a part of. If God does foreknow those things, and did, and will, when did God, not physically form, but plan, and in a sense, create you and me? It seems to me from these passages that at least in a spiritual sense, life begins not at conception, but in eternity past consequence of my belief for me and my family is that I could not refuse a blessing, a gift from the creator of the universe, a a being planned by God. Now, God does allow us to make decisions which may result in prevention of those blessings planned way, way back. Of course, he lets us accept the consequences of our decisions. And if you don't catch my drift, think Harry Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. Okay? Okay? who wishes that he had never been born, but then he gets a glimpse from an angel of what the world would have been like without him. Yeah, last time I talked about this, it created a little bit of a stir. Uh, It is a hard saying, and if you don't agree with me, I can understand that completely. Not all will. I simply ask that you think about this as you prepare your answer to the larger cultural question. Once we have developed a perspective on the value of life, we must then carefully consider our rhetoric, how we're going to present this. What's the best way to influence those who have not thought it through? Well, unfortunately, the standard pro-life argument is pretty basic. Abortion is murder. Okay? The problem, while it's impossible to deny that truth biblically, This truth is usually presented without love in the public forum. And so the standard counter-argument is, oh, this poor young victim of rape is a murderer? Yeah, right. The main doctrine from which we must... The positive message that mankind is the image of God. While most Americans... Probably mankind is the image of God. While most Americans 
probably don't believe or live their lives according to the principles of the Bible, the polls indicate that upwards of 85% of Americans say they believe in the God of the Bible. So we should use whatever common ground we have to gain a foothold in their hearts. And the common ground has its foundation in Genesis 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I assume us means the Trinity. They, mankind, will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. Now, if one is a member of the human species, that being bears the divine image. His or her life is sacred. With this single recognition, we find the basis of biblical ethics for life, not to mention the most basic morality that all live by, even those who say they don't believe in it. Just ask an atheist if it's okay for you to shoot him in the head. This simple concept gives a straightforward answer to the question of induced abortion. The command in Exodus 20, do not murder. In other words, do not take innocent life applies to all human beings from the beginning of life to the end. Because man was created in the image of God, he is qualitatively different from a mere animal. That's why we punish people who intentionally harm other people and may even on rare occasion put to death someone who takes another human life in a heinous manner. Now, I'm not advocating cruelty to animals. Remember, we took in Eva the Diva dog, and we even accepted our prodigal dog back. All life, including animals, is valuable to God. But listen to God's perspective on the value of human life and where we stand. Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his son and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. In verse 5, Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. In other words, if a beast kills a person, the beast dies. And from every man... From every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. Now, which is more appealing to you? To hear and believe that as a human being, you are something special, that you bear God's image in your very essence. Or, to be told by Peter Singer that you're an animal. We must help others understand the linkage between the image of God and the unborn within the context of choice. And you can see the dissonance this will create. Why should anyone choose to destroy the image of God? So if we drive this image of God concept into our culture, into the psyche of the American public, we will help people understand that that the God of the Bible is the only source of moral authority. When we're accused of legislating morality, but we we don't want to deny that. We want to say we are promoting morality and preserving the image of God. Don't be ashamed of those words. We need to say it in a civil and compassionate way. This is how we avoid the distasteful aspects of the debate which lead to apathy. People don't want to get involved in the abortion debate. But it brings the issue back to God, something we should all want to talk about with our neighbors and others. Finally, we need to address the other victims. There's a huge issue of the consequences of abortion on many millions of women, young and now some pretty old, who suffer emotionally in its aftermath. In any church, it is almost a certainty that some, perhaps many, have experienced an abortion. In some of those churches, reminders come 
every year at this time and on Mother's Day. I was reminded of this by a lady who headed up an organization called Victims of Abortion back in the 1980s. And she said, every woman who has been pregnant is a mother. Some die when they're young, some die when they're old, some die by miscarriage. Mine died by abortion. If we only focus on the brutality of murder, of, of the murder we call abortion, we've caused a whole generation to turn its back on the issue. Remember, Jesus extended love to the woman caught in adultery. She drew her out of her sin. By extending love rather than condemnation, both women who have experienced abortion and those who are considering it will find the forgiveness, the healing, and the strength of God they so desperately need. The voices needed in this part of the conversation are those of the aborted and healed women. We must support them when they have the courage to stand and speak through prayer, unconditional acceptance, and encouragement. At Lion and Lamb, we support both the CareNet, a pro-life organization on the national level, and the Caring Pregnancy Options here in Topeka. And I encourage you all to support them individually and frankly, to volunteer there. Women who minister in this area are heroes. And we have one such hero among us today. Barb Watkins served as the director of the Pregnancy Support Center in Lawrence for several years. And I want to personally thank her and others who volunteer to help women struggle with these difficult circumstances of facing pregnancy alone, or others who walk side by side with women through the valley of the shadow of abortion. Thank you, Barbara. These post-abortive women suffer greatly. But there is hope. There is forgiveness. Just as women have the power to choose life for the child entrusted to their wombs, these women have the power and the privilege to choose the blood of Christ, which is faithful to cleanse all, repeat, all unrighteousness, and to cleanse. If the experience of repentant women can be highlighted, the forgiveness and healing only God can bring will touch the hearts of those who hide their memory in shame. Said that a picture paints a thousand words, and we're going to watch a video now, which is probably worth my 6,210 words. So go ahead and start that up, and then I'll finish.
If you faint in the day of adversity, our strength is small. If we forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if we say, but we did not know it, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps our souls, does he not know it? And shall he not render to every one of us according to his works? Father God, we pray that you would direct our attention that you would instill in us an even greater value for life. May we treasure this precious life you have given. May we go beyond talk to live out our reverence for life. And when skeptics ask why we care so much, may we be able to say in all humility because that is what our God does for us. Lord God, thank You. Thank You. In Jesus' name, Amen.